All right, if you're visiting with us, quick orientation. We are in the midst of a sermon series this summer that we've entitled The Creed. We're considering the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, In order to organize our thoughts, we're considering these doctrines through the lens of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This is a third, fourth century uh, uh, statement, and we want to uh, take the opportunity to recite it along with those through the ages that have affirmed the Christian faith. So let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today we'll consider the doctrine of Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. There are many who claim to follow Jesus, but some are merely following a Jesus of their own imagination, a Jesus of popular culture. Do you know there's a lot of ideas out there about who Jesus is? Jesus is my homeboy, says one t-shirt. Jesus, to some, is a a gentle pacifist, right? A a, a nonviolent revolutionary who uh, came and and taught his people to live in peace. Uh, American psychologist Rollo May asserted that Christ is the therapist for all humanity. He's the the, the good listener who who just helps you to live a more healthy life, right? He's a therapist. The cross is worn by some who have no interest in actually walking in the way of the cross. Simply worn as a fashion statement or maybe some sort of of a lucky rabbit's foot. A lot of different viewpoints of who Jesus is, but the Bible presents a multifaceted, historically rooted, rich, full view of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what we set out to consider here today. One of the other tools that we've used is uh, the catechism. Uh, I want to read three or four questions from the New City Catechism. And uh, I'll pose the question, you answer. Again, a succinct way of articulating what we believe about Jesus. Question 20, who is the Redeemer? Redeemer, 
What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Why must the Redeemer be truly human? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? With an economy of words, the Apostles' Creed captures the breadth of who Jesus is. In the weeks to come, we will consider what Jesus did in more detail. But today we will consider who Jesus is. There are many names of Jesus that could be considered. Uh, The bread of life, the alpha and the omega, the living water, the shepherd, the Word, the Lamb of God, the Way, the Great High Priest, the Nazarene, the Second Adam, or the Son of Man. But the four names or titles mentioned in the Apostles' Creed give us a good foundational understanding of who Jesus is. And so that will be our our outline this morning, considering those four names or titles. The first is Christ. Christ. Jesus is God's long-awaited and authorized representative in the world. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, but his title. It would be more clear to call him Jesus the Christ. The Greek word Christ was actually taken from the Hebrew word Messiah. So there's a history to this word in the context of God's chosen people. The particular title, Christ or Messiah, literally meant one who had been anointed. A person would kneel down and they would pour oil over their head. I actually have some olive oil here with me this morning. And uh, usually they would take the very first press of the olives, what's called virgin olive oil, right? The purest of the oil, And it would be used for special sacred purposes, like the anointing of a king, or a prophet, or a priest. Samuel anointed David to be king, right? He pulled him aside from all of his brothers. King Saul at this time was still the king, but Samuel pulled David aside and said, I'm anointing you as king. Oil represents blessing. It's a very important part of agriculture uh, there in Israel, but it's symbolic of blessing and it's symbolic of God's presence. I don't think it's by coincidence that when Samuel poured the oil on David, we're we're told in in the midst of all that, that God's spirit came upon David. God's spirit left King Saul because of his sin. God's empowering spirit left Saul and came upon David. That was pictured by the olive oil, by the anointing that happened. 
But that anointing symbolizes a deeper reality of God's presence. So the term Messiah or Christ or anointed one could refer to anyone who had been anointed or authorized for a special role or a special office. We might have a swearing-in ceremony, right? Do you solemnly swear the President of the United States, as he's sworn into office, right, has a special ceremony? And in the, the Jewish context, that would involve the pouring of the oil. So it could refer to anyone who is being commissioned for a particular task, but over time, it was used to speak of the Christ, or the Messiah, or the Anointed One. Think in the context of biblical history, of the overarching story of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve were led astray by the serpent. They violated God's command in the Garden of Eden. As a result, the world came under the curse of death. But in the wake of Adam and Eve's devastating choice, God promised that one of Eve's descendants would become a deliverer. A deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent and make all things right again. And Adam and Eve's descendants waited expectantly for that promise to be fulfilled. The promise was repeated down through the ages. One of Abraham's descendants would become a source of blessing for all the nations of the earth. One of King David's descendants would establish an eternal kingdom of peace. So repeated again and again, down through the centuries, God was going to send a human representative who would make all things right again. That is why the gospel accounts begin with a genealogy. Right? Jesus was the long-awaited human deliverer. Matthew, in Matthew 1, declares Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's why the genealogies are so important. We're tracing God's promise to see if this Jesus could be the one we've been looking for. And Matthew says he is. He lays out the genealogy in full detail. When Jesus was born, the wise men saw a movement of the stars that indicated the birth of a great king. They followed the star to Israel and went to King Herod to inquire about this newborn king. The chief priests and the scribes consulted the, the, the scriptures and determined that this long-awaited Christ or Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. See, they're, they're looking, they're observing, they're trying to figure out when this deliverer is going to show up. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove. And Remember what that anointing represented? It represented divine presence. God's Spirit comes upon Jesus there at his baptism. He is anointed empowered for ministry. Jesus referenced this even at the outset of his ministry as he shared on the Sabbath day, reading out of Isaiah. It says there, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus read this Old Testament prophecy, put down the scroll and said, this prophecy has now been fulfilled. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about, right? I am the one who's been anointed by the Spirit of God. Peter, of course, issued a great declaration about Jesus' real identity. Jesus kind of called for the question. Jesus said, uh, you're hearing what all the people are saying about me, right? Who do the people say that I am? And then he finally said, and who do you say that I am, right? When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the one that we've been waiting for since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So Jesus is... The Christ. Some of you might uh, remember this particular moment involving President Ronald Reagan. He challenged the Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Reagan was speaking in the city of Berlin, a city that was divided by communism. A concrete wall separated East Berlin from West Berlin. And these were some of President Reagan's words on that day. He said, Secretary General Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Powerful words. A turning point in what was happening in the Soviet Union took two more years, but eventually the Berlin Wall did come down. And Reagan brought the full political weight and economic influence of the United States to bear on this situation. We look at the, the great impact of these words. But Jesus didn't just speak with great influence. He didn't just come and act with good intentions. He came with authority and power to do what he set out to do. Uh, Reagan on that day had good intentions. He didn't really have any formal power over the situation. He was making an appeal, an appeal that ended up being effective. But Jesus comes with power and authority to do what needs to be done. He is the Christ, the anointed one of God. He has the divine presence of the Spirit of God with him. We encounter a lot of problems in our world, right? PFAS contamination and COVID and uh, Russian aggression and Ukraine and political unrest. And we have this very clear sense that there's Things are not as they should be. And many of these things are beyond our ability to solve. 
Jesus is the one that all of humanity has been waiting for, whether they realize it or not. The one who can actually fix what is broken in our world. Have you recognized Jesus as the hope for humanity? I think it's really uh, the thing that, that, that ought to stir in us as we think about Jesus as the Christ. That This should move us to hope. Uh, hope fulfilled. Something that humanity had waited for down through the centuries. And now Jesus, the Christ, has come onto the scene to accomplish what humanity could not accomplish. There's a second title here, and that is the title Son. Son. His only Son. A reference to the Father's only Son. This, this title speaks to Jesus' relationship with God. And it's a powerful statement that Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Father's Son. He is the Father's only Son. As John says repeatedly in his Gospel, his only begotten Son. This is the significance of the virgin birth. As announced here in Luke chapter 1, the angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was raised as Joseph's son, but Jesus did not have a human father. He was the Son of God. And in that, Jesus is in a category by himself. (laughs) The scriptures tell us that we are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. But we are God's children in a different sense. We are made God's children, adopted into his family. In contrast, Jesus has always been God's son. According to the Nicene Creed, eternally begotten of the Father. So Jesus existed before he was born as a human being. He was with God in the beginning, as was read out of John chapter 1. He was the agent of creation. God affirmed Jesus as his son at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And God again spoke at Jesus' transfiguration when Jesus had Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him and he peeled back the curtain and allowed them to see him in all of his brilliance. To see just a glimpse of his glory Right? And there was Jesus and Moses and Elijah appearing on the mountain. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see what's going on here? Peter's like, oh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Wow, this is like a Hall of Fame lineup here. You know, let's, uh, let, let's really commemorate this moment. And, 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 and he is interrupted <laughs> in mid-sentence by God who says, this is my beloved son. Jesus. No, no, no one else is in his category, all right? Jesus is my beloved son. Jesus spoke of his relationship with the Father on multiple occasions. 
Now, this was shocking language to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He was claiming to share God's DNA. The religious leaders knew exactly the implications of what Jesus was saying. John 10, I and the Father are one. John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This was ultimately the only crime that the religious leaders could pin on Jesus. Blasphemy, right? He claimed to be equal with the Father. God had promised to send a human deliverer, a descendant of Eve, who would undo the curse, crush the serpent, make all things right again. But surprisingly, God himself becomes that deliverer. He takes on human flesh, the second person of the Godhead, enters into our plight and rescues sinful humanity. So while the term Christ speaks to his humanity, the one descendant of Eve who would make all things right again, the term son speaks to his deity, his divinity, his equality with the Father. He is both fully God and fully man. There's a couple notable times where Jesus was addressed as the Son of God. Uh, One of them was Matthew 14. The disciples sent out into the boats. God allows them to endure the storm throughout the night. Jesus comes walking to them on the water in the fourth watch of the night. Peter asks if he could come out on the water with him. And Peter walks on the water. And then they see Jesus calm the storm. And the the, the declaration of the disciples, surely, truly, this is the Son of God. The centurion uh, there at the cross at Jesus' crucifixion sees the the sky grow dark, right? Perhaps hears word of the the, the curtain being ripped in two in in the temple And he declares there on his knees at the foot of the cross, surely this was the Son of God. Jesus, as the Father's only Son, should move us to worship. We recognize that God took on the restrictions of humanity. The very Son of God. That little t-shirt of Brooks, right? (laughs) The restrictions... Of humanity, the one who created the universe was willing to humble himself to the form of a little baby. We ought to be moved to gratitude and praise and worship for such a demonstration of love. God is committed to humanity, He has joined Himself to humanity. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, entered into time and space. And even after his death and burial was raised physically, bodily, from the grave and ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father, humanity is still represented in heaven today. A wonderful implication of the incarnation. Scriptures make it clear that if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. John 3 16 unpacks that for us. You see, in our natural state, we are God's enemies. 
we were able to come to God as Father through faith in Jesus Christ. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus shows us how we can relate to God as our heavenly father. He has paved the way for us to be reconciled to God. There's a third title here, and that is Lord. Lord. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus is the ultimate authority and highest allegiance. This term son speaks to Jesus' relationship to God the Father. This term Lord speaks to Jesus' relationship to us. He is our Lord. That's how we relate to him. That's how we ought to view him. He is our master. He is our king. Uh, Not some tyrannical despot who has grasped control, but legitimate king. His authority is tied not only to his deity, but to his role in redemption. Revelation 5, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. So people are gathered around in worship of Jesus, the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So that's, that's financial language there. He's, he's bought us out of, he's redeemed us out of slavery. He's paid off our debts so that we no longer are slaves to sin. But that means we belong to him. Right? He is our owner, our master. Our king. No other allegiance should rival our allegiance to Christ. I know there's been discussion in recent years about the pledge to the American flag. And uh, there's been a movement to try to remove the words under God out of that pledge. I have to just say to you, if those words aren't there, we've got problems. (laughs) I'm unable to pledge my absolute allegiance to a country without the understanding that my ultimate allegiance is to God, <laughs> right? I mean, this, this, is, this, is really, this is really clear stuff. And it was actually one of the pressure points in the early church in what was called the imperial cult. It was customary to declare Caesar is Lord. This was the statement of allegiance to Rome. Caesar demanded absolute allegiance, borderline worship. Matter of fact, Julius Caesar allowed a statue of himself to be erected with the inscription, Deo Invicto, to the unconquered God. And when the church refused to declare Caesar as Lord and instead declare that Jesus is Lord, that was a problem. Jesus is Lord, deserves our highest allegiance. 
Matthew 25, 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. The master goes on a journey and entrusts his uh, resources to some of his servants. And then he comes back to get an account, right, of, of how they did with the responsibility, and you'll remember the one that buried his talents, his, his money in the ground. The end of that parable is shocking. Uh, Jesus says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That the Lord, the master of the parable, expected obedience from his servants. And Jesus, if we're going to call him Lord, if we're going to identify ourselves as his followers, he too demands obedience. This should move us to humility. We understand this aspect of who Jesus is. We do not have the luxury of viewing Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. In recent weeks, I've heard a number of people share their testimony, and they uh, talk about how as a young child they came to some genuine understanding of Jesus, and, and, and oftentimes motivated by a sense of fear, right? Fear of God's holiness, fear of God's judgment, fear of hell. And it's not a bad motivation, it's a reality. God's holiness is real. But if that's all your salvation is, 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 is an attempt to escape hell, then you, you, you've missed a part of what the gospel is. The gospel doesn't just call you to believe in Jesus so that you don't have to go to hell. The gospel calls you to get down on your knees and proclaim allegiance to a new king. Jesus is not only Savior, He is Lord. Jesus made it clear that this is not just a matter of words. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to act like Jesus is Lord. To actually obey His word. To actually love the church for which He died. Very specific things that we have been called to do as his followers. John in 1 John puts this forward as the litmus test. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, this should move us, this particular title... For Jesus, this particular aspect of who he is should move us to humility. Call yourself a Christian. Are you actually following Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to him? What areas of your life remain outside of his authority? Well, the final title uh, is the name we're most familiar with, and that is simply the name Jesus. And this will help lead us into our observation of the Lord's table here this morning. That's why I've held it till last. Jesus is the one who rescues us from sin and death. The angel told Joseph and Mary that she would bear a son and that they were to give him the name Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew. This was certainly...
familiar name to the Jewish people, Yeshua or Joshua, succeeded Moses and led the Israelites into the promised land. The Hebrew name literally means Yahweh saves or God saves. This is the name that was given to Jesus, right? Because he would save his people from their sins. Here's the account in Matthew 1. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice the nature of the rescue. Jesus has come to rescue us from our sins. You find uh, in the various uh, accounts of Jesus' healing and miracles, uh, a consistent, persistent attempt to push people to understand their true need, right? So the paralyzed man, right? He couldn't find his way in because there were so many crowds around Jesus. And so the four friends took him up onto the roof and put the, pulled the tiles away and lowered the man down through the roof. A tremendous display of their faith that Jesus could heal this man. And Jesus surprisingly, in response to their faith, says, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if the man was disappointed. If he thought, well, great, but what, what, what about... We, we don't really know the, the, the response and all of that, but Jesus was trying to, to direct him to his real need. And this comes up again and again and again. He went on to heal the man, right? That was a bonus. But the real powerful thing that happened there was that this man was forgiven of his sins. He was brought into a right relationship with God because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus as Savior should move us to joy. This was the response of the shepherds uh, when the announcement was initially made. Jesus has not come to resolve your financial woes, your chronic disability, your job struggles. These things are not unimportant, but they are not your greatest need. They are merely symptoms of a deeper problem, the malady of your sin. If you went to the doctor with a bad infection and he only put a band-aid on there, you would be disappointed that he didn't actually deal with the root of the problem. That's malpractice. And sometimes we are so fixated on getting Jesus to fix our lives and all these other details of temporal existence that we have lost sight of the fact that he has come to rescue us from sin and death. Our greatest needs, our greatest enemies. Have you turned to Jesus so that you can be rescued from your sin? What are you going to do with Jesus? We encounter these four names or titles. It really covers the breadth of who he is. Have you responded? Not just to a sentimental notion of Jesus. Not just to a Jesus of your own imagination. Have you responded to the Jesus of history? The Jesus as testified in the Bible. As recognized by the church down through the ages. C.S. Lewis recognized that people have a lot of 
bizarre ideas about Jesus. <laughs> this classic quote, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make, up your, cho- make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. Right? You have to make up your mind. Will you accept the Jesus of the Bible or will you reject him? That is the choice that is put before us as we consider Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord.